Okay, if you have a Bible with you, uh, if you want to turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, we're just going to read one verse uh, and I'll read it out to us. Ephesians is a book uh, in the New Testament. It was actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul who uh, uh, wrote a number of letters to different churches that he served as he went around and visited them and preached the gospel to them. Uh, so the, the Ephesians uh, is a letter into a, a church in, in a town called Ephesus, which is in what would now be modern-day Turkey. Uh, we're going to read one verse, as I said, from chapter 2 and verse 10 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. It says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let me read that again. It's just a short verse. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that we've all around to this evening uh, gather and sing. Um, and we don't just come together to sing because we like singing, but we come together because we want to praise you. We want to give you all the glory and we want to thank you for who you are. And as well, we want to come and meet with the living God. We thank you that's the sort of God that we believe that you are. You're not just a, a distant creator who's now just left us to get on with things, but you're a, a God who rose from the dead Jesus, that you're alive today, uh, and by your Holy Spirit, you're working in us uh, individually and together as your people, your church, your bride, your family, your community. You're at work amongst us, and we want to take that so seriously. We don't want to muck around with you. We want to come and enjoy you, and we want to follow you with all of our hearts, not because we have to, but because you've begun a work of transformation in us by your grace. And we want to follow you with all of our hearts because quite simply, it's just the best way to live. So we pray even just now as we look at this one verse together in your word, we pray you speak to us and guide us and open our hearts to hear from you. Amen. Amen. Yesterday afternoon, I had the privilege of spending the afternoon walking around the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. Have any of you guys been to that? Good. Good. Well done. I think I've been there about four or five times. Uh, if you haven't, you should try and check it out because it's uh, a wonderful way to spend a few hours. You could, you could get lost in there and spend all day in there. It's an amazing place full of all, uh, I guess, the best artwork that the Netherlands has produced, um, particularly in the, the kind of what they would call the golden age of the sort of 16th and 17th centuries. But there's some amazing works by Vermeer and Rembrandt and others in there as well. And the striking thing about the Rijksmuseum when you walk in is, or actually the, the way it was originally intended uh, for you to kind of view the museum is you were to walk in and you'd walk up the main kind of grand staircase and you kind of weave around and you'd come into the back of the room, uh, a big hall which is called the Honor gallery, which is where the most famous works of art there. And you're supposed to enter through the back of that room and walk down the 
through this massive great room. And as you're walking down it, um, so that's the way we entered yesterday, and as you walk down the room ahead of you, right in the center at the very end of the room, is Rembrandt's most famous work, uh, The Night Watch. And it's there on the wall ahead of you, and it kind of draws you in as you walk down the room. And the whole museum was actually designed for that, for that experience to take place, that you were supposed to enter through that entrance, walk up those stairs, you walk in the back of the room and have that painting in front of you. And uh, about seven, eight years ago, they, they finished renovating the museum. They closed it for 10 years to do lots of renovations. And when they reopened it, the only one painting they'd left in its original place was the Nightwatch. Everything else they'd moved around. They'd kept that one painting there. And even now, I've been there four or five times, and often you go in and it's a little bit disorientating because they often move bits of artwork around or they take famous paintings and they go off to other galleries elsewhere in the world and they swap them and bring new ones in. So there's always new stuff to see. But the Nightwatch always remains in exactly the same place, in kind of pride of place. It's this, this center. Everything is built and reflected around that picture, which I think is a bit of an illustration of of how God views the church, the, the people of God, that he's made us, his people, to be, as it says in this verse here, his workmanship. Other ways you could translate that verse would be, the original word there is poema, which is where we get the English word poem from, or some people would translate it as work of art. That verse is saying that we, his people, are supposed to be his work of art that he's delicately painted and put together and he's spent time to kind of create this picture this beautiful picture of his people that we together as his church are his we we're, we take pride of place we're his the bible uses language like we're the the bride of christ like a bride at a wedding and the same if you go to a wedding uh, that moment when, when the bride enters the room and walks down the aisle. And uh, I, at my wedding, I, was, I experienced it for myself as the groom. You know, you get there first and people are talking to you and everyone's like, oh, how are you doing? You must be really excited. But then when the bride enters, no one cares about you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I was the most important person to the, in the room until my wife-to-be enters and starts to walk down the aisle. And all the eyes turn and everyone looks at her. Like, wow. And, and that's, again, that's the sort of language that the Bible uses about the church, that we're supposed to be Christ's bride, that he loves us, that he's created us. Um, that this morning at uh, our morning service, I wasn't actually preaching. A friend of ours called Terry Virgo was preaching, and he said this about the church, not this morning, in another occasion. He said, the church is the people of God. Is not just some pathetic little thing left over from a previous generation. It's his ultimate goal. It's his glorious bride. It's the crowning glory of the whole creation. That's what his people, that's the, how he intends us to be, the crowning glory of his creation. If you go back to the, the, the very start of the Bible in the Garden of Eden, the, 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 uh, what God holds as his most precious are his uh, human beings, Adam and Eve. That's, the garden is created for them. <laughs> All of creation is created for us that we can 
enjoy as humanity is kind of the centerpiece, the crowning glory. And all through the story of the Bible, first of all, in the Old Testament, you get the story of the people of God, the Israelites, as they move around. In the New Testament, that becomes the church. But all the time, at, at pride of place is God's people, his church. That's what he's most passionate about. That's what Jesus is praying for in heaven right now. He's praying for his church. He's praying for his people. He's praying for us. And he obviously, the, the, the Night Watch painting is, is, is given that name for a reason. Because after Rembrandt initially painted it, um, it was it, people didn't really like it at the time. They didn't really understand it. And it kind of got a bit left out of the way. And it gathered lots of dust and became quite dirty. So you couldn't really see it. It became quite a bleak picture. Why it was called the Night Watch, because it was just so dirty and mucky. It was only, I think, hundreds of years later when they properly cleaned it. They were like, wow, <laughs> we'd forgotten what he'd actually painted here. It's just got dusty and horrible and gritty and mucky. And again, that's often what happens to his church. Because there are two ways of understanding the church, the people of God. There's globally all God's people all around the world, all through human history, that God's loved and chosen his people, the, the kind of global historic church. But then there's his individual communities that he sent out into the world, his people, the church here, Liberty Church in Amsterdam, other churches here in this city, other churches all over the world, that God loves them as little communities of his blessing. And yet they can get, they can sometimes, even if you, if you speak to people in the, in the city around us, they might have a bit of a negative view of the church. There are some parts of the world where the church, the people of God are, are persecuted or, or attacked for what they believe, that they can't speak openly about it, that they have to meet in private here in the way. They wouldn't be able to meet here on a busy street in a cafe with big windows so people could look in. They would be not allowed to do that. And often, even in the Bible, there's, on one hand, this, this picture, like in Ephesians, of God's glorious church that he's loved and redeemed and created for a purpose. But at the same time, there's a picture of, I guess, like an, an exile church, a church that actually have been sent into kind of a hostile environment where they might be despised and unloved, but yet God sent them into the world for a purpose. In the book of Jeremiah, which was in the Old Testament, which was written to the people of God after they'd been sent in to exile, the Israelites, uh, the Babylonians came and, and, and routed Jerusalem and took them away. And they killed uh, the majority of the population and took a kind of a remnant back to Babylonia and they were called the, 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 they became the exiles. They were taken away. And the book of Jeremiah is a prophet writing to them, encouraging them. And there's a verse in Jeremiah 29 where it says, But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And partly that's the role of the church. On one hand, we're supposed to be this kind of glorious, beautiful bride of Christ. But on the other hand, we're sent into almost enemy territory. We're sent into exile, into sometimes a dangerous arena where we sometimes have to worship God uh, in, in a society that thinks that's bizarre, <laughs> thinks that's weird. 
They think that's outdated and irrelevant. And there's a big question for us is, how do we build a church that carries a big vision of who it is in Christ and seeks to serve the city that we live in? How do we do that in a city like Amsterdam? Because Liberty Church isn't just about a morning meeting at the Vonnelkirk and meeting here in the evenings and then we just go home. The idea is we, we, we want to be a, a community, the, the family, the, the people of God together. This, this, his prized possession, these people he loves, who he sent us into the world for a, for a purpose. To, to magnify, to glorify his name to the people around us and to love the city that we're sent into. So what I want to do this evening in the time we have left, I'll talk about five, five um, kind of distinctives of what the church, what the people of God is supposed to be like in a city like Amsterdam, what we're supposed to be like. And number one is we're supposed to be a disenchanted church in an enchanted city. Let me say that again. We're to be a disenchanted church in an enchanted city. One of the ways that, that uh, if you go back to the beginning of Amsterdam and kind of hear its founding story, um, if you go back to, I think it was 1345, there's what's known as the miracle of Amsterdam. I think I've told this story lots of times. Uh, if you've been here before, uh, where a, a, an old man was sick and a nun came to him to offer him communion. And he took the, the wafer of communion bread and then he was, he was ill. He, he threw up, he vomited up the communion and they, they shoveled it up and put it into the fire. And his vomit burned away, but the piece of bread remained intact. And it became kind of a Catholic miracle and people from all over Europe f flocked to Amsterdam to hear about this miracle. And um, two more times, the, the, the house where, where this had happened became like a church, became a shrine, and they kept this piece of bread. And two more times, the, the whole building burnt down, but each time the story goes, the piece of bread remained intact. You may believe that story or not believe that, that story, but it, it kind of founded Amsterdam as this religious center. People, people from religious enthusiasts from all over Europe would flock to this city. Uh, there was a time where there were 19 different monasteries just in the center of Amsterdam alone, which would have been a much smaller city then. We would have been outside of the city as it, as it was then. There were 19 monasteries. A third of all the buildings in the city were monastic properties and they belonged to the church. And to modern Western ears, that whole idea seems like, sounds like fake news. You know, it's kind of laughable. It's sort of bizarre from another age, from another galaxy. And we like to believe, or the, the people around us in Amsterdam like to believe, that we live in, in an age of disenchantment, that we don't believe in evil spirits or, you know, witches or ghosts, or higher beings, or miracles, that the kind of the mask, the, the sort of the trickery, the enchantment of that weird religious age has been pulled away. You know, the spell has been lifted. There was a, a German philosopher called Max Weber, who he described the idea of secularization. So to be secular is to have a society or to live without God. 
So the process of secularization is a society becoming, uh, uh, moving away from God. And he called that the disenchantment of the world. <coughs> that the world is becoming more and more disenchanted because it doesn't believe in all those fables and myths anymore. But actually, if you look around our city today, there's lots of enchantment. There's lots of people searching after things, ideas, beliefs. There's lots of desire for all sorts of different things in our city. So a, a, a sociologist called Peter van der Veer, who works at the University of Utrecht, said that actually today we're far from disenchanted, but the thing that enchants people today is money and markets and power. That's the thing that has gripped people. That's the thing that makes people do things that they wouldn't normally do. The desire for more money, for more wealth. That all through our society, there's this religious undertone where people are searching for things to satisfy themselves. The English writer G.K. Chesterton said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. If you look into the red light district here in Amsterdam, the point is he's saying that people are they're looking for, for something, some kind of desire within them, and it's searching for something. It's, they're searching for God, ultimately, but they don't know it. And we live in a city where there's all sorts of desire around us. You can have a society without the God of the Bible, but actually people will just worship lots of other gods instead. You don't have to look far in our city to see lots of worship happening in lots of different ways. There's lots of enchantments that trick us into believing that what they offer is liberty. And that's why we called our church Liberty Church, because we want to offer to our city true liberty. Where people come to our city searching for liberty, searching for some kind of sense of purpose, such sense of freedom... But actually, they, they often aren't able to find that because the city, the enchantments of the city trick them, deceive them in a, in a subversive way. So often people don't even realize until it's too late. And actually, what we want to be as a church is, is a, a, a disenchanted church that in, in all the different competing beliefs and gods and deities, all the different things that are offering people freedom, that offering people hope, or offering people joy, that right into all of that, that God sent his, his church, his people, for us to actually lift the spell and proclaim reality. That's what we believe the Bible tells us. That's what we believe we find in Jesus is reality. Whereas the world around us will say, no, 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 this, this, is, this, is, this is fable, this is myth. This isn't reality. This is just enchantment, trickery. This is just, just a, a, you know, a nice potion, just something to, to trick you. And we say, no, this is, this is reality. That knowing Jesus is as real as you can get. That's, that's where we find what true reality is. That's how we lift this kind of spell of enchantment is throwing our lives into Jesus because we suddenly find our purpose. We suddenly find what we're created for. We suddenly find that we find true freedom and liberty 
not in just pursuing all our own hopes and dreams, but in worshipping him, in living lives that say, I'm going to follow Jesus, whatever the cost, suddenly we find a freedom there. So number one, the church is to be a disenchanted church in an enchanted city. The second one, we get to be a, a sent church in a transient city, a sent church in a transient city. We live in a city, you might have noticed, this is probably true for many of you as well, where people are, are coming and going all the time. People arrive in Amsterdam from all over the world, from all over the, the Netherlands, and people just as quickly as they arrive tend to move on to all sorts of different places. Incredibly transient city. And uh, I think one of the big challenges for any church or any community really in Amsterdam is how do we build something a sense of, as Indy was talking about at the start, how do we build a sense of real family where people really know each other, where people really care for one another, where people really love one another, where we really love the city and our neighbours and our friends? How do we do that when people are going all the time? And I think one of the ways that we do that is by staying. <laughs> that would be my provocation to you. It's okay, you're allowed to leave. You know, it might be that God calls you onto somewhere else or an opportunity arises... But I'd encourage you to seriously consider staying in Amsterdam, of putting down roots here and building your life here and loving the city, committing to the city. I, th I think 100 years ago, um, the, the, when people talked about Christians, we talk about mission and evangelists, the, the big cost was, was leaving. Whereas today in a city like Amsterdam, the big cost of mission is actually staying. Because literally, for many of you, it'll be more expensive to live in the city than to live outside of the city. I mean, you might be much easier to let to live 50 miles away in the in the countryside, or to move to a, a cheaper city or cheaper country. That staying here and committing to this city can be painful, can be costly. But when you commit to a city, when you commit to a community, particularly in a very transient city, very quickly you can begin to make a difference. Because when people are going all the time in community, when people are moving around, you can go from being an outsider to kind of one of us very quickly. Because very soon you become the stable presence. People are moving around all the time, but you don't have to stay here for very long and you'll become a bit of a rock, a bit of a stable presence that people can, uh, can build their lives around. So that's the... Part of our calling is to be a sent church in a transient city. Number three is to be a non-anxious church in a frazzled city. That's a great word, isn't it? Frazzled. Be a non-anxious church in a frazzled city. And we live in, a, in, a, in an exhausted, frazzled, tired world. There's a survey that came out last year uh, here in the Netherlands that said, Three out of four students said they felt emotionally exhausted. That's how they described their state of mind. Three out of four university students, they felt emotionally exhausted. There's a survey that came out recently that said 46% of millennials, millennials would be people born in the kind of 80s, 90s, and 2000s, so probably most of you guys, 46% of millennials say they, they feel stressed all of the time. Maybe that reflects your state of mind, often because of finances, work, maintaining some kind of emotional balance in their life. And there are lots of reasons of why that happens. It could be social media, it could be 
uh, all the different demands of their life. But I find that living in, in a city can often leave you feel quite stressed and exhausted because the, the, the demands of living in a city like Amsterdam can be, can be quite overwhelming for people because we live in a, in a city of, of achievement. Many of you living in, uh, working in, in different companies in the city, you've, you live here in Amsterdam because uh, lots of businesses have their, their, their HQ, their headquarters in the city, so they bring the best and the brightest to Amsterdam to come and work. But they have incredibly high expectations of people. You might work in the creative industries, the creative world, and again, you've come to Amsterdam because this is where the best, most creative, most talented people come. But again, there's very high expectations of performance of being able to achieve certain things. And that can be overwhelming. To live in a city with such a high sense of achievement can make people feel exhausted. We live in a city that, that never sleeps. There's always something to do. There's always action taking place. And often to be, to be burnt out, to be kind of so exhausted that you run out of energy and capacity, people see that almost as like a badge of honor, you know, You've only really lived life if you've had a burnout, if you've reached that level of stress that's totally exhausted you. We live in a, in a city of unfulfilled dreams, that people come here because they want to achieve all their dreams and hopes and purposes, but often aren't able to. And city life can be very demanding. And perhaps for us as believers, the best witness that we can be to people in our university and workplace and neighborhood it's quite simply not to be stressed, <laughs> to know the peace of Christ in our hearts, to be able to, to be peace to other people, to help and support our friends and our classmates, the people we work with, when they're stressed, to come alongside them, help them to process their emotions, give them someone to talk to, be able to take weight and burden off of people. That can be perhaps the best witness we can be in a stress city. Number four is to be, the church is supposed to be a faithful church in a relationally broken city. A faithful church in a relationally broken city. Because we live in a city that doesn't really know what, how to build relationships. Because to really build relationships, it takes commitment. It takes sacrificial love. It takes putting other people before ourselves. And often we see so many different broken relationships around us because people don't know how to do that. That in relationships, as soon as people hit a moment where things get hard and challenge and they have an argument or a disagreement, or they hit a season where they feel like they've kind of fallen out of love or fallen out of friendship, people walk away. Because, you know, if this relationship doesn't fulfill me anymore, I'll just go and find another one because we live in an individualistic world where the most important thing is keeping ourselves happy. So if this relationship doesn't keep me happy, then what's the point of it? I'll just get another relationship. I'll just move on. That's how people treat relationships in a very transactional way. I'll get what I can out of it. If I'm not getting anything out of it anymore, then that's dead to me. I'll move on. It's gone. And we don't know what it takes to build relationships which really care for people over the long term, which where we do genuinely put other people first. When we love people who are often unlovable, that's hard. But yet, 
Jesus came to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, it says in Ephesians 1, that Jesus came to take all those broken things, all those broken relationships, and put them back together again. And that's, again, part of the church's role in a city like this, is to come alongside all sorts of broken lives and broken relationships and help to bring restoration, to bring people back together again, to help to restore broken relationships, to help to reunite things, to put broken lives back together again. I remember one, we'd, we'd been living in the city for a year or two, and one of our daughters came home from school, and she said to Joe, my wife, she said, when, when are you and mummy, when are you and daddy going to break up? That was her question. When are you going to split up? And we're like, what do you mean, when? Uh, and we thought, well, that's a bit of a bizarre question for our daughter to ask. And then we realized a little bit later after talking about it that she was the only kid in her class that came from a home where mum and dad were still together. That all her other classmates came from broken families where dad wasn't around anymore or maybe they didn't even know who dad was or mum had moved out and gone somewhere else. That's true for all of her friends in the class. She was the only one that came from a kind of stable family. I don't say that in any way to show off. I'm saying that to say, look, as Christians, you get to, it just in faithfully building good friendships and relationships and marriages and loving people, again, you get to be a really powerful witness. Because the church is supposed to be like a, a new community that in a sense we get to show to Amsterdam a kind of an Amsterdam 2.0 like a, a, a better version of what the city could be like, a better version of what community can be like, a better, greater version of what our city could be if we really learn what it was to love one another. Jesus said in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what Jesus said to, to his friends. He said, if you love one another, Everyone will know, oh, they're Jesus people. And they'll know that because of how you love one another. It's very simple. <laughs> Sometimes to tell other people about Jesus can feel like a great pressure. Like, oh, no, I've got to learn all these apologetics. I've got to learn how to be an evangelist. How do I do that? Well, very simply, the main way is you just love people. Just build friendships. That's a really simple way. And how Liberty Church, how we love one another people will see a, a better version of what Amsterdam could be. And they'll also see Jesus in us as well. So we get to be a faithful church in a relationally broken city. And then finally, number five, we get to be a, a restorative church in a chaotic city. And there's lots of things that we love about Amsterdam. It's such a beautiful city in so many different ways. But there's also lots of chaos as well. There's lots of broken, hurting people. There's also people who've been through horrible trauma, whose lives are, are a mess. And there's lots of ways that the church can feel threatened and scared and vulnerable in a city like this. And really, you, you, have, uh, you have two options, really. We, you, can, you can either retreat or run away, or we can seek to invade and serve and bless. I don't mean invade as in take over and pronounce some kind of Christian kingdom in the middle of Amsterdam. 
I mean, we get to live our lives in this city and to love people and to serve people. And that, that, that's not a quick fix. That takes people who will stay, who will build lives here, who will raise our families here, who will pray for this city and love this city again and again and again and seek to, to serve this city. And maybe everything I've said to you this evening is, is, is old news and makes sense to you. But uh, we often forget, as I said at the start, the, the reason that the, the Night Watch is called that name is because it was forgotten, because it grew faint and had to be restored. And what God often does is he takes kind of sooty, dirty, forgotten image bearers of him and he breathes life and power into us. And that's what he wants to do with his church. Where we feel dirty and mucky and forgotten, he wants to breathe life into us. And that verse is true of the church, the people of God together, but it's also true of us as individuals. That that's how God views you as his, as his work of art, as his workmanship, as his, as his poem. That he takes great delight in you, that we're precious to God. You know, you, at the moment, it was fascinating being in the Rijksmuseum yesterday they're in the process of restoring the night watch so it's all surrounded by this big thing so you can still see it but you can't get very close to it uh, and they've got some weird kind of robot thing attached to a computer that's doing the very careful precise restoration of this picture um, but the, the amount of care and detail that's being taken to restore that painting is because it's it's precious and you, it's surrounded by people all taking Actually, most people weren't taking photos of the painting. They're taking selfies of them with the painting behind them, as people do these days. But it's, it's, it's something that's, that's treasured. It's something that's like the prized possession, not of just the museum, but of the whole nation, of everybody coming in. Everyone wants to see that painting and get a picture of it, get a picture of themselves with that painting. And that's how God sees us, as precious, as treasured to him as, as people that he wants to carefully and painstakingly restore. You know, the amount of detail taken to restore that painting is nothing compared to the interest that God takes in your life of what he wants to restore within you. And you might feel incredibly broken and in need of restoration. And you might think, where's God in all of this? Well, little by little, he's at, he's at work. He's restoring you to his image. He's crafted you. He's made you as his work of art. And he's going to keep on working in your life to restore you into his image, to restore us as the people of God into his image. He's this beautiful painter, this wonderful architect, this beautiful creator who didn't just create the world at the beginning of time and then leave it, but he's still creating today. He's creating in your life with that same creative power that burst the world into being he's now in you creating and the main way he does that is through the work of jesus who has called us into himself who died and gave his life for us so that you could know god so that you could be shaped by him restored little by little by his love by his care and by his grace let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your just intimate love for us. 
And we can see that love ultimately displayed in that you died for us, that you care so much for your work of art that even when it was broken and failed and, and a mess, even when we were broken and ugly and distorted, even when we made a mess and a failure of our lives, you don't discard us and throw us in the bin. You don't lock us in a store cupboard and hope people forget about us. But you, you died for us, that you loved us that much. You would give your life for us so that you could restore us back into your image. Now, that's not something we do by ourselves. It's not that Jesus has died for us, so now we need to come and, and make ourselves better. But by your Holy Spirit, that you're doing it within us. That little by little, you're repainting us, recreating us to be more like you. And you're recreating your church to be this beautiful light into this world. To be this beautiful bride that everyone looks at and says, wow, look at that. Look at how Jesus loves us. And I pray you'd help us, Liberty Church here in Amsterdam, to be your bride. To build a, a community, a family that, that loves you, Jesus, and loves this city and seeks to serve this city. We can be your image displayed into this city that many would people would come to know you. We pray, Holy Spirit, come and help us, we pray. Amen. Amen.